with verse 13 and reading on to verse 27. Uh, But let's pray first. Father, again, we just want to commit this time in your word to you. And just want to ask again that you would, by your spirit, impress on us the preciousness of your word, the privilege of being able to get to know you through your word. And I just want to pray again for Pastor Mike, that you would fill him with your spirit, uh, that you would speak powerfully through him, and that you would help us to listen well. Um, Lord, maybe just give us one thing, one thing today that we could look to you for this week in order to demonstrate that we want to love you with uh, everything we've got. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord.
I left my, I left my remote somewhere. Is it up there? This is embarrassing. Um, there it is. Well, perfect. It was on my seat. So good to be with you all today, and you get to see my forgetfulness here, and, and uh, it's already on us. All right. Our church family, we are on a journey through the Gospel of Mark. And we have seen, as we have traveled through the gospel, Jesus just do amazing things. He has healed the sick. He has raised the dead. He has spoken to the seas, and they were calmed. He has traveled out into the wilderness and, and fed thousands upon thousands of people. Uh, he, he has just done amazing, amazing things. And in this last few weeks, for those of you that haven't been here, we are finally in the last week of Jesus' life. In Mark 11 and verse 11, all the way to the end of the gospel, we are in the last week of Jesus' life. And we saw on that first day of the last week of his life, him coming into Jerusalem, riding on that uh, colt never before ridden, and thousands upon thousands probably tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people lining the road with palm branches as he came into Jerusalem and the temple. All of this is building toward the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, but we're not quite there yet. One of the main things that Mark has wanted the reader to see as, you, as, as we have gone through this gospel is that Jesus is a crowd magnet I mean, the crowds just come to him everywhere throughout the gospel. You might remember uh, at one point, uh, he he and his disciples can't even eat. The the people are so overwhelming them, they they literally can't move their elbows and get food to their mouths. And at other points, Jesus has to get into a boat and get out in the lake in order to teach because the crowds are so overwhelming. And so one of the primary things, one of the things that Mark wants us to see is this incredible crowd and the thousands of people who are following him, and they are recognizing as he comes into Jerusalem a week before the Sunday of his resurrection, they have recognized he is more than a rabbi, that, that this guy is, is, many of them likely are expecting him to get on the throne in Jerusalem and usher in the kingdom now as the Messiah. And thousands and thousands of people are enthusiastic and and looking to him, but not the religious leaders. They are after him, and they want to kill him. And so in today's passage, we're in the midst of that battle that's going on between Jesus and the religious leaders who have to turn the crowds, these thousands and thousands of people, away from him if they are going to maintain their authority. And they want to maintain their authority. And so they are going to work Jesus. They are going to try to work Jesus, to try to trap Jesus so that they can turn the crowds away from him so that then it will be safe for them to kill Jesus. So this is where we are at in this journey through Mark's gospel. We're going to begin today looking at Mark 12 and beginning at verse 13. We're going to see three different ways that we are similar to the religious leaders in today's passage, to the people in today's passage. We're going to see, first of all, that they use flattery as a tool to try and get what they want. And may I suggest that we use flattery as a tool to try and get what we want. 
So that's one of the things we're going to see. We're also going to see that Bible knowledge or the pursuit of Bible knowledge can actually get in the way of knowing the Scriptures and the power of God. We're going to see that last. And then in the middle, we're going to see another way that we're like the people in today's passage is that we sometimes elevate the importance of something that is not that important, and we elevate it way up here. That's something that we're going to see in today's passage as well. So I hope you have your Bibles open with me as we look at Mark chapter 12. We're going to begin at verses 13 and 14. Let me just pick it up there. It says, Later they, that is the Sanhedrin, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to teach Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. At least one of you got the sense of this, right? These guys are lying. They are lying. Did you get the flattery here? Do you hear what they're saying? Now, if you weren't here the last couple weeks, they were just asked to take a stand, especially the Pharisees, to take a stand on who John the Baptist is. Is he from God or is he from man? And these experts in the law and these experts in the things of God, they don't know who John the Baptist is. Whether he was from God or whether he was from man, we don't know. But here, now, in contrast to that, they are saying, Oh, teacher, oh, Jesus, we know what a man of integrity you are. You are swayed. They are using flattery here to try and get what they want. There is a massive amount of irony here that they are saying exactly the opposite of what is in their hearts. Not only do they not think he's a man of integrity, but they want to kill Jesus. We see this in Mark chapter 3. Way back then, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, two disparate groups, two people that are not generally friends, how they might kill Jesus. And here they are finally about to work their plot. One commentator writes this. He says, the Herodians were as obnoxious to the Pharisees on political grounds as the Sadducees were on theological grounds. Yet the two groups united in their opposition to Jesus. Collaboration in wickedness, as well as goodness, has great power. Their purpose was to trip Jesus up in his words so that he would lose the support of the people, leaving the way open for them to destroy him. So these Herodians who were loyal to Rome, loyal to the government, are uniting with the Pharisees, these Jews who are supposedly loyal to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, and they have joined forces together to oppose the Son of God who has been sent as the Savior of the world. And the tool that they are using here right at the outset is flattery. And Mark, just massive amount of iron here. Not only is what they're saying a lie, but what they are saying to the reader of Mark's gospel is actually absolutely true about Jesus. Look at what they say again in verse 14 and following. Jesus is a man of integrity. He is not swayed by popular opinion or what the rules of the day are, but he is teaching the way of God in accordance with the truth. So one of the things I want to just draw out of this passage is this use of flattery. Uh, flattery, 
we, you and I, desperately need God's grace in all kinds of different ways. And one of the ways that we need God's grace is to discern that flattery is a common tool for manipulation. And I might suggest that some of us use this tool or have had this tool used against us uh, or toward us. Uh, Flattery, just the definition here, is excessive and insincere praise, especially that given to further one's own interest. And it's a lot uh, more enjoyable to share with you when flattery has been used against me than sharing it when I've used it. So I'm going to go ahead and share with you an illustration where it was used uh, against me at one point, okay? So several years ago, many years ago, my daughter was uh, about seven years old, and I get a phone call. They are looking for a soccer coach for her rec soccer team. I have never coached soccer. I have never coached girls. And I get this phone call from this recruiter. And the first few minutes, minute after minute, he is just talking about how great a soccer coach I would be and how I'm the right guy. And he's just going on and on and on, like just just talking like I I am going to, you know, eventually lead the U.S. men's national team. But you can start with these seven-year-old girls. You are the guy to coach these girls. So after he gets through with that, I'm like, well... Obviously, um, I don't know anything about soccer. I don't know really how to coach girls. If you were in my house regularly, you would know that I often refer to myself as chopped liver when it comes to uh, my daughter because she doesn't really gravitate toward me directing her in things like soccer and others, and I'm not sure I'm the guy to coach the seven-year-old girls' soccer team. So this guy eventually realizes that flattery, yeah, 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 uh, flattery's not going to work. So, you know, he eventually just says, we just need somebody. We can't find anybody to coach this team. I mean, he was honest at that point. He was just honest. The flattery didn't work. It was just out. We just need somebody. Will you do it? We just need someone that can show up at practices and, and maybe love the girls a little bit and, and be, at, be at the games. And so that was my one and only year of coaching uh, girls' soccer. I bring this up to say we need to be careful and we need God's grace to avoid manipulation. And sometimes we use flattery as a tool to try and get what we want. We've had it used against us. We have used it. And it is not something that the Lord would have for his people to use. We see this in Proverbs 29, verse 5. A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. We have a hunting metaphor here, a net. The idea here of this net is it would be used to trap a a bird or an animal to to, to catch it. And the the author here of of the proverb leaves this ambiguous. A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for whose steps? Is Is it the neighbor or is it the one who's doing the flattering that's going to get caught in this net and ensnared. I think this is intentional ambiguity, but we look at the next proverb, it says, by transgression, an evil man is ensnared. He's caught in the trap, he's caught in the net, but the righteous sings and rejoices. So this is referring to the one, Proverbs verse 29, 5, is referring to the one who's doing the flattery. And so, again, this is one of these points of connection that we have in today's passage. We desperately need God's grace to not use flattery as a tool 
of manipulation. Back to the passage here. We're getting to their actual argument and how they're going to trap him. They're using flattery, but here comes their argument uh, moving on to verses in the middle of verse 14 through 17. Here's Here's their trap. Is it right? They buttered him up. They flattered him. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. And, G- and, and Mark, our, our gospel writer, this is an omniscient narrator. He knows what Jesus is thinking. He knows what people are thinking. He's letting us know. Jesus knows their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, these, this last statement of Jesus, I could preach a whole message probably on this little statement. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. There is a lot here about the separation of church and state in these little words. I'm not going to go there that much. Just wanted to point that out at the beginning. But let's look at this trap carefully. Now, you don't have to be an ancient Near Eastern scholar to know that people back then, like today, don't like to pay taxes. And the crowds were opposed to paying taxes. The Jewish crowds, the people who were lining the road as Jesus came into Jerusalem, the crowds that assembled out in the wilderness to hear him, to hear this incredible teaching, teaching with authority that like no one has ever heard before, these people were opposed, the Jews were, to paying this tax for a variety of reasons. One of them, I'm assuming, not mentioned in the text, but one of them is we don't like to pay taxes. We don't like to separate from our money. But they had theological reasons for not paying these taxes. They had biblical grounds. They had commandment reasons, spiritual reasons. You see, the Caesar was thought of as a a divine being or a son of a divine being. And so they were afraid of breaking the second commandment and becoming idolaters, and we can't pay this tax because it, it makes, shows uh, that we, we become a part of this Roman system that is worshiping these divine rulers, these Caesars. Some of the Jews were so serious about not paying this tax that they wouldn't even look at the coin because there's an idolatrous image there. And look at what Jesus does. Look at the text. They, 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 they set the trap for him, and then he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. He's sending a message to those Jews who think they are earning brownie points with God by, I'm not even going to look at the coin, let alone pay the tax. And Jesus says, let me look right at that image of the Caesar, the son of the divine. Let me look at it. He looks at it, communicating something to them far beyond what they were anticipating. They were just trying to trap him. They're trying to get him to say what they think he's going to say, don't pay the tax. And when he says that, the Herodians, who are loyal to the Romans, are going to take Jesus for you know IRS tax evasion kind of stuff, and that'll be the beginning, and we'll be able to kill him. That's, what, that's where they want to go. But Jesus takes this trap, and he's saying something much more profound. Let me look at it. He's communicating you're not violating the second commandment by looking at a coin that has an image potentially of a divine son of Caesar of God. That's not what this is all about. This is not what's most important. So give to Caesar what 
is Caesar's. In verse 17, the NASB puts it this way, And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now this first part gets a lot of attention. Pay your taxes. Submit to the authorities. And there is this this idea of the separation between church and state, and we are part of a kingdom that is not aligned, and we don't need to make a big deal about what is going on in the state. We are part of another kingdom. Go ahead and pay your taxes. Go ahead and do that. This is where uh, a lot of the attention uh, goes. So, again, we need grace. This is what the scriptures are all about. And we need grace to discern what's really important and what's not. And one of the creative and powerful things that Jesus is teaching here is that avoiding paying this tax or not looking at the coin, that is not what's really important if you want to be my follower. That's not what, that's not, it's not even on the list of, of what I'm after. So that idea of paying your taxes gets a lot of attention here. But I want to focus on this second thing. He says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then he says, to God the things that are God's. What is he referring to here? Now, the, This is often just skipped over when we read this passage. He's saying, pay your taxes. Romans 13, submit to the authorities. Do what they ask you. It's not idolatry. But what is he saying when he says, and to God the things that are God's? What is he getting at here? What is he looking for? He's not looking for you to avoid looking at the coin that has Caesar's picture on it. What is he wanting from you? So the careful reader of Mark's gospel is going to ask that question when he gets to that phrase, what what is it that he wants? What am I supposed to render to him? And the first place we should look when we ask questions like that is in that actual gospel writers or in that actual book of the Bible's uh, text and what it's saying. We can look at the whole New Testament and the whole Bible, but we want to start with, what does Mark say? And so if we go back to chapter 8, look at this. He then began to teach them. Jesus did, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You remember that? But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So the things of God in our passage today, that should be rendered to Jesus, in essence, are, is the gospel message. This is what he's been trying to communicate to the disciples, to the twelve. He, he's trying to undo their wrong theology that he's, he's about to come and take the throne and rule in Jerusalem. And hey, can I get this room at the temple area? Can I, can I be at your right? Can I be at your left? No, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be raised after three days. And these are the things of God in chapter 8. And so when we come to our passage uh, again today, um, I didn't mean to go there. Coming to our passage today, the things that we are to render to him, in essence, are the, is the gospel. We are to live out the themes of the gospel. This is what he is looking for in us and through us, not that we avoid looking at this coin that's in our pocket or avoid paying taxes. So the themes of the gospel, believing the gospel, 
and living out the themes of the gospel like love, like enduring suffering and forbearance. These are the things that we are to render to him. Are you with me, church? Are you tracking with me today? You know, what is important? We need God's grace to discern what's really important and what's not. So imagine with me, if you will, a, uh, a man who's training for a mountain bike race, okay? And he is training hard. He's uh, spending time up in Downeyville and, and uh, up in Truckee and Tahoe to improve his cardiovascular. And he's, he, he's preparing for this race and, and he's getting ready. He's getting the elevation in. He's getting the miles in. He's getting all the time in. And the race has finally come. And they're getting up early and they're getting everything ready. And, and he and his wife are, are, are driving to this, to this race. And there's been all this preparation and all this time. And, he, and, he, and he's excited. And then there's this massive traffic. And they get out of the house late. And they're on this way. All this preparation, we're building and building for this race. And this man on his way to the race is just ripping into his wife. He's frustrated. He's angry. And she's nearby. And she just gets it. It just comes at her. It has nothing to do with her. But he just, just lets her have it. What's really important to him? What's really important to him at that moment is something that's not important at all in the economy of God. This race. This travel. What is really important is that we live out themes of the gospel day by day. What's really important is that he loves his wife as Christ loves the church. And that he's kind to her. Way more important how he treats his wife on the way to the race than how he does in the race or that he gets to the race on time. Jesus is communicating something incredibly powerful here when he says, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's. And what he's referring to is not only the content of the gospel message, but living out the themes of the gospel in our daily lives. We desperately need God's grace to see what is important and to render our faith in the gospel and living out the power of the gospel to him. And it says, and they were amazed at him because he was able to say something that the crowd totally opposed, paying taxes to Caesar for religious reasons. Jesus was able to teach them that that was wrong and not fall into the Pharisees' trap and the Herodians' trap, but actually to increase their allegiance. This is the Messiah. He teaches in a way we've never seen. He has authority like we've never seen. So you and I desperately need God's grace to discern what's really important and what's not. It's not fun to talk about, but the reality is we are a lot like the religious leaders, like the Pharisees, like the Herodians, like the chief priests, like the teachers of the law, like the scribes. J.D. Greer writes this. He says, The gospel has done its work in us when we crave God more than we crave everything else in life. And when seeing his kingdom advance in the lives of others gives us more joy than anything we could own. When we see Jesus as greater than anything the world can offer, we'll gladly let everything else go to possess him. It's not a big deal to pay your taxes. It's not a big deal to look at this coin. It is a big deal that you believe the gospel and that you live out the themes of the gospel in your life. Render to God 
what is God's. We need God's grace to discern these things. Let's continue on in our passage today, looking at verses 18 through 27. Jesus has just undone every one of these traps that has been set. And there were some, a couple last week, and this first one this week about paying taxes. Now another trap is going to be set, and we'll look at verses 18 through 27 now. It says there that then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. First one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but, she, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? We've got more kind of play going on here with the religious leaders. They're not really interested in whose uh, wife she will be. They are interested, Marcus told us, in trapping Jesus. They also are showing their sexism, their chauvinistic tendencies with this question. And this was prevalent throughout most all of culture in this time period in the first century. Because there, it was not uncommon for a man to have multiple wives. And so in the mind of an ancient person in the first century, an ancient Jew, it, it wouldn't be outrageous to think of a man with multiple wives, perhaps after the resurrection, if there was a resurrection, but there isn't going to be a resurrection according to the Sadducees. So that might not be too outrageous, but for a woman to potentially have multiple husbands, are you kidding me? This is crazy. And they're trying to trap Jesus with this law that is in the laws of Moses that was for the people of Israel. If a man died, has no children, his brother is to take his wife and to care for her and to continue the family line. But what these experts in the Bible have missed is, the, 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 again, the priority of this law in many ways. The Sadducees, uh, a couple of things about the Sadducees. The Sadducees controlled the official political structures of Judaism at this time, being the majority members of the Sanhedrin. They were known as extremely strict on law and order issues. They also did not believe in the resurrection or in angels, an important detail in verse 25. So they're wanting to show Jesus up because they understand that he believes in the resurrection, and they don't think that the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testaments, that, that th those books don't teach that there's a resurrection. That's their understanding. And they are experts in those first five books. They have memorized, many of them, the entire entirety of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, these Sadducees. They're comprised of mostly aristocrats and prominent priestly families who dominated Israel's ruling council, uh, the Sanhedrin. Uh, the the uh, Sadducees were, were a big part of that. Religiously conservative, they recognized only the five books of Moses. So we have here people who have arguably the most Bible knowledge of anybody around when it comes to those first five books. They know them inside and out. They have memorized them. And they know about this law, and they are trying to trap Jesus into saying there is no resurrection. This, of course, doesn't make sense. 
uh, th this idea of, of, of a woman having seven husbands after a resurrection. So let's look at his response. Verse 24. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses? Notice he, he could have refuted, referred to other passages, but he refers to parts of Scripture that they view as authoritative. Have you not read in the book of Moses and in the accounts of the bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Jesus is hitting head on their false doctrine that there is no resurrection taught. And he's just doing it in a very simple way by identifying this phrase from the Torah, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The implication is that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob still exist and they're going to exist on into eternity. And Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, is the God of them. He, it's just a very simple presentation. You are mistaken about the fact of the resurrection. But beyond that, they are also mistaken about the priority of this leveret law of taking your brother's wife if he were to die and has no children. That law is about to end Along with the laws of sacrifices and the dietary restrictions, Jesus is doing a new thing, a new covenant, and he's going to have a new people, and he's going to have new leaders, and he's about to do away with these leaders. That's what we saw last week in the parable of the tenants, that he's about to throw them out, and they are no longer going to have care of the vineyard. So what we have here is the people with the most Bible knowledge who actually don't know what the scripture says, or the power of God. So we, you and I, are like them. Some of us, especially those of us who are intellectual leaning, we can put Bible knowledge way up here. And in this passage, I want to argue is saying that we need to discern that Bible knowledge can prevent one from knowing the scriptures and the power of God. That's how they're living. Massive Bible knowledge, and they don't even know the scriptures. They actually don't even know God. They don't know his power. They don't know what he's about to do. He's about to establish a new covenant. And the scriptures that they know have prophesied about it again and again and again. And John the Baptist has come saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And they have rejected all of that. They don't even know the scriptures. So we need to be thinking about how we know the scriptures and we need God's grace so that our Bible knowledge doesn't get in the way of us knowing the Scriptures and the power of God. Do you hear what I'm trying to say this morning? I love how Paul prays for the church uh, in Philippi. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Notice what's dominant there. It's not that your knowledge would abound and some love will come out. Love is what's dominant. My prayer is that your love may abound, your love for God, your love for others, this true virtue of love. I'm praying that it will abound. And knowledge and depth of insight is under this, this, this great virtue of love so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. I'm afraid some of us, especially those of us who are intellectual leaning, that we have 
we have kind of flipped the primacy of, of, of this. The primacy of love and loving God and loving neighbor over knowledge. Knowledge is important. I'm not trying to diminish it. James K. Smith, he writes this. He says, if we are going to discern what is best, what is excellent, what really matters, what is of ultimate importance, Paul tells us the place to start is by attending to our loves. What do you love this morning? What do you love? One of the reasons that we gather on Sunday mornings is to reorient our loves because our loves can go toward all kinds of things, whether that's a mountain bike race, whether that's a car, a house, a spouse, a certain lifestyle, a certain preferred future that we're looking forward, looking for. Our loves can go in all kinds of places, but our ultimate and primary love needs to be for the Lord Jesus. And what's really important is that we then, out of our love for him, are loving those around us, advancing his kingdom this way. Again, I'll I'll quote from J.D. Greer. We'll close with this. He writes, Without love, even the most radical devotion to God, like these Sadducees, They have radical devotion to God. Without love, even the most radical devotion to God is of no value to Him. Let me make sure that sinks in. You can gain all the spiritual gifts in the world. You can take the most radical steps of obedience. You can share every meal with the homeless in your city, in Auburn, in the foothills. You can memorize the book of Leviticus. You can pray each morning for four hours like Martin Luther. But if you... But if what you do does not flow out of a heart of love, a heart that does these things because it genuinely desires to do them, it is ultimately worthless to God. And so Paul prays for his church at Philippi, and he's praying for his church here in the foothills and his church in the Middle East and his church all over the world that we would have rightly ordered loves, that we would put those things that we think are really important. I'm not going to look at this coin. It's got this image on it putting those things in their place. This mountain bike race is really important, putting that thing in its place and loving him above every idea, everything, every person, everything in the world, and out of that, loving one another. This is what God is looking for. This is part of what he's saying to those who have ears to hear as these religious leaders try to trap him who have more Bible knowledge than anybody in this room or anybody there that day. Let's bow our heads and and pray and ask for God's grace to be at work in us. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your forgiveness. We're thankful for your grace. We know that it was a costly grace that our forgiveness from our misordered loves and our idols and the things that we get so upset about, Lord, that we shouldn't. We know that the grace that we receive from you that forgives us for all of those things, cost Jesus his very life. So, Lord, we're asking this morning that you would help us to render to God those things that are his, that we would believe the gospel, that we would be living out the themes of the gospel, and these lesser things of life would be put in their place. We're thankful for you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen.